Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Big Chill Podcast. This is episode 514. Liam Plunkett on his career in Major League Cricket. Chillians, and welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. I'm Frank, joined as always with Eddie. Eddie, how's it going? Yeah, things are going pretty well. Obviously, World Cup's underway. It's nice to have, you know, multiple football matches to watch every day. Yeah, and on Thursday, you'll have multiple football and football. Yeah, one of the best Thanksgivings ever, I guess. You have a good set of Thanksgiving Day NFL games, which is also rare, right, to actually have games that on paper at least look competitive, have multiple playoff teams involved, have playoff implications and then at the same time to have some actually pretty decent world cup matches as well yeah a a phenomenal week of sport in general yeah and 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 i guess before we discuss all of that in a little bit more detail it's worth saying we have a, a great interview coming up with liam plunkett former england international cricketer chance to talk about his career including the 2019 world cup final and also major league cricket and his involvement there and what they have planned in terms of bringing the sport of cricket to the U.S. in a a very real way. So an exciting conversation about, especially for our American listeners, if if there are any out there who we've sort of developed a slight interest in cricket, it's going to become a little bit easier for you to go and attend a live cricket event with some of the world's best cricketers taking part. Yeah, I I, actually, after our interview, I've been super excited ever since, and I've already booked off my calendar for uh, what is it, July 2023, when they're going to have their inaugural season uh, in Dallas, Texas. I will definitely be there. It's going to be super exciting. I just, I love the idea. I love the concept. And I hope, I really hope it it picks up here. It'd be so neat. No, very cool. And nice to see a sport, always nice to see a sport growing in, in new places and a, a chance for people, more people to get exposed to, you know, what is a very interesting and exciting sport. So obviously that interview, usually that should Start around 30 to 40 minutes into this episode, so if you're only here for that, you can skip ahead. But as usual, we will encourage people to stay for all the conversation that happens before we get to the, the Liam Plunkett chat. Yeah, and I think the majority of our talk will probably be NFL and World Cup. So I guess I'll, I'll pass the ball, and you decide what ball that you're getting. Um, let's start with the, with the World Cup, right? Biggest sporting event in the Perfect. world. I think it deserves to take you know, okay. be front and center for the conversation. Yeah. Well, I guess speaking of front and center, Qatar uh, went out and set a record. First first host nation to lose the opening match. Yeah. Not the <laughs> Welcome re- to the World Cup, Qatar. Yeah. Not the record you want to hold. The hold. Um, yeah, it was a disappointing start to the World Cup. It was obviously a match in the buildup to it. it the, the discussion was dominated by accusations that Qatar had bribed some of the Ecuadorian players and that this was going to be a, you know, you didn't see any of this. There were very serious. No, I did not see that. There were very serious rumors going around. I think it was a, that the, uh, Qatar had bribed several uh, Ecuadorian players. I think the total sum of the bribes was rumored to be around $7.3 million or something like that. Now, you get see oh not to win oh <laughs> terrible google translate yeah <laughs> google translate screwed it up so sorry and as with any internet rumor i didn't 
give much thought to it, I have to admit, until I then there were these videos that then circulated of the Ecuadorian captain who uh, not too long ago in a match in had he was he's behind on child support payments, I believe. And the police had come knowing as they had to find exactly where he was and they knew he was going to be playing in a professional football match. They came to the stadium to try and enforce the payment of these overdue child support payments. And he was he found out that the police were there during the course of the match, feigned injury, was carted off and then taken to the hospital to avoid making these payments. And the moment I saw that video, I was then willing to accept the idea that someone who went to those lengths might be willing to take a bribe to throw a match in the World Cup. As it turned out, I think Qatar looked all right for maybe the opening 45, 90 seconds of the match, and then the wheels came off. It was not a not an impressive <laughs> performance from them. No, not at all. It was, uh, I guess... Great match by Ecuador, but I, I think it was more a, a lack of match by Qatar in watching it. Yeah, they were just outclassed, you know, and it's a question of ability. It's a question of experience. You know, Ecuador are not exactly the, the best team in this World Cup, but they are consistently in major tournaments. And there's just a know-how that comes along with that. And I think they grew in confidence over the course of that. And I think pretty quickly realized that they were in a position to comfortably win there was a little bit of the, there was a controversial decision to have their first goal disallowed for offside, the replays of which were not really shown. It sort of still remains slightly unclear exactly how and why an Ecuadorian was offside in the buildup to the goal. Well, I mean, you, you, you didn't see the, it couldn't have just been Fox Sports that had the, where they show like the, they showed like the plane and no. that his leg was over the plane. They didn't show that? No. And I saw oh, that like Fox Sports had like a really cool thing where like it it was animated but real at the same time, if that makes sense. And it had like the plane and it was literally just like half of his shin was was across. The thing that's unclear to me though, even in that, is all of the stu- the freeze frames I've seen of when they're drawing the line for offside, it's not clear to me that an Ecuadorian is touching the ball. Like oftentimes it seems to be the goalkeeper who's touching the ball, in which case I don't understand how the player's offside. Yeah. As it transpired, it was not of any major significance. Didn't make a difference. No. So <laughs> he's, he's, he scored like 10 minutes later. <laughs> yeah. So, which I mean, I think everyone should be thankful for. And so far it's been a world cup that's been devoid of any super controversial Referee oh. decisions, although the Argentina well, match—you're not getting. No, you're not getting the USA papers. I guess. What What are they worried about or upset about? USA uh, players have complained that it was a terribly officiated match that cost them the match. Okay. And their big argument is in the lead up to the foul mm-hmm. that was the penalty for Gareth Bale. The ball had gone out. The ref had said he had kept it in, and then he kicked it to the American player who then kicked it out of bounds, out of play. And then that became a, a throw-in for Wales, and they threw it right in, and that's right when the penalty happened. I the think- American swears that the ball was out and that should have been their ball and there should never have been a throw-in. He said it was the worst call he's ever seen. Wait, is that the action? <laughs> Are you being hyperbolic there, or is that... I'm being slightly hyperbolic. Okay, but well, was, let's not be close considering that many of our listeners will not have access to these statements. Let's not be hyperbolic in terms of quotations. But uh, the 
I think, look, I think if the U.S. are looking for excuses, they have to start by looking in the mirror. They dominated that first half. They didn't take advantage of just how on top they were, and they allowed Wales to come into it in the second half. They seemed too content to sit back and try and protect the lead, and they needed to get a second goal to kill that match off. And if anything, we've kind of seen that in this World Cup so far, right? Uh, you know, England were so convincing in that first half against Iran because of the fact that they scored multiple goals and put the game to bed. Argentina were dominant in their first half against Saudi Arabia, but didn't manage to do that. And then that allowed Saudi Arabia to get back into the game at the start of the second half. So, you know, any of these teams that are blowing leads when they have had periods of dominance, they first, you know, I think you look less at the officials and more at the fact that you didn't really take advantage of the position that you should have put yourselves in. Yeah. And I, I mean that I didn't, I did respect a lot of the criticism that after the match, a lot of the American pundits were giving him was when you're a young team like that, you can't let things like officiating or just flow of the game get to you. You, you know, like you could tell that first half they they had composure. They played well in that second half. Things started to unravel and it got to them and it just started snowballing. And you see Wales just had more and more pressure. But, you know, like a lot of the pundits were saying, it's that's the downside of being a young team is you let things get to you and you don't have that experience of, you know, like, OK, this happened. So what? Let's move past it and, and just I, focus on what we were doing. But, but, but and I know you don't mean it that way, but even the way you're saying it is as if they were it was a match plagued by multiple officiating decisions that were they were allowing to get to them. I don't I didn't watch I, that match and think I'm not just saying just officiating. No, I, I know think, but I'm just saying in general the play got to them a little bit and, and they started to snowball a, a little. Yeah, and, I, and that might be an experience. I think it's lack of quality too. Like sometimes it's easy to attribute everything to an experience when you just don't have necessarily the best players out there. I guess I have to make two statements. I, yeah, you know, I was pretty dismissive of Wales. I don't think they did anything in that match to convince me that they were actually quite good. I'm not worried about them playing against England. They didn't look particularly good at any point, although in the second half they sort of found their feet a little bit more. You did, in our World Cup preview, ask me if the Argentina group was the group of death. And after that, and I, would, I said I wouldn't take a group with, Argent- with Saudi Arabia in it as being a group of death. And I guess I was immediately... Proven. Do you have that soundbite? I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we don't. I don't put my own embarrassing soundbites on. It's only your sound clips that, that kind of come back to haunt you. But the yeah, I Argentina now are in a slightly tricky position because you know if you you lose your opening group match, it puts you under a little bit of pressure for your two remaining games, and obviously their two remaining games are at least on paper more challenging than their opener was. And so you go into matches against, you know, Mexico and and uh, Poland needing results in both. And that's not a great position to be in when you came in as one of the teams that most people expected to be, you know, taking part in the latter stages of the tournament. I'll tell you another thing that's surprising so far, I think, for the World Cup is the amount of stoppage time that's being added. Yes and no. For these matches, are you seeing like four was it fourteen minutes? And and I get there was some serious injuries. I know in the England match there was the concussion injury of the keeper. Uh, well, he broke his or nose. Whatever it was, I'm not sure how much. Okay. You, you know, he broke his nose. Uh, so coming into well, the when you, when you smash your head and break your nose, there's a chance you might have gotten a concussion in that Maybe. as well. 
coming into the ma- and that was just poorly handled. That wasn't a great look either for the medical teams or for the Saudis, uh, for the Iranians. Sorry, to be perfectly honest, in terms of how that was handled in the moment, that took far too long to get the goalkeeper off the pitch when it was clear pretty much from the from the outset that the substitution was going to need to be made. But it is not surprising how long. I mean, yes, in that England match, there were a total of twenty four minutes of added time played between the first half and the second half. Pierluigi Colina, who's the head of the officiating uh, for this World Cup, one of the things he outlined coming into it was the fact that they were going to play. It was to be expected that even in the first half, you were going to see four or five minutes of added time as standard just because they were going to do a better job of trying to crack down on time wasting. And that was one of the areas of focus for officials. So I think that is what you you should expect Whereas normally you'd think of kind of three minutes as being standard, you know, often in the first half, you only see one. I think it's now going to be sort of five, six minutes as a standard for this, which I think is kind of a good move. It's just going to put a bit of stress there on consistency. I don't want to see Brazil winning one nil in the final. And all of a sudden there's only four minutes of injury time (laughs) added on. And this is always the issue when it comes to rules like that, which gets me on to the only Bit of officiating, I guess, from the England. Well, I was, I was just going to say, just closing that up, since since uh, the records were kept since 1966, these matches so far already total the five highest stoppage time added match halves. Yeah, and as in I said, they, World Cup. They, they, and it should make sense because now they're being very, I guess, uh, official with it. I guess you could say the word uh, literal. Yeah. Maybe, you know, like so so I'm fine with that. They came into it and they said that, and as long as that's consistent, that's fine. There's no real reason for anyone to take issue with it as long as there's consistency there. But you know, I, I guess the only officiating I guess we've got a couple of issues to talk the Argentina goal that was disallowed in the first half today. It's technically offside. However, I don't know, you know, it gets back. We've debated this endlessly on previous episodes and I know how much you love this discussion, but as far as I'm concerned, having your the edge of your shoulder slightly off in front of the defender, even when your feet are behind, just because of the angle of your body. And yes, you can legally score with your shoulder. I, I just don't, it doesn't feel right to me. I feel like something is getting lost there in terms of the technical application of the of the law versus kind of what the spirit of the offside law should probably be. So I didn't love that. And then in the England match, I thought the Iranian penalty was a penalty. However, if you're going to award that penalty, the fact that Maguire can be just rugby tackled in the first half and that's nothing, and then a little bit of shirt pulling, like to me they're both penalties, but you got to be calling both of them. To The fact that there seems to be more focus on sort of shirt pulling sometimes and actual physically grabbing makes no sense. And then you kind of saw Argentina awarded a soft penalty today for exactly the same thing that Maguire was on the receiving end of. So that's the kind of inconsistency that's a little bit concerning. Yeah. It, the I don't have much as much of an issue with the offside rule because I think I, I get what you're saying, but at the end of the day, I'd rather have a rule that has a distinct this or that. I'll give you a dis- at least that. I'll give you a distinct one. Feet. Let's just use people's okay. feet. If that's your argument, that okay. If that's going to be your argument, then maybe. If you're, I don't care what angle your body is leaning at. If your feet are behind, then you're okay. But the idea that we're kind of looking at 
oh, the very edge of this person's shoulder is slightly in front. I mean, what benefit is that giving the player? You're not, you know, you're not. So I, I just think simplify it. I think it would be very, it would be so much harder for people to take issue with it. It would feel less like we were debating these obscure millimeters, which is, you know, what we kind of get into. I know they've also tried to solve one of the other problems, which I think is the other, you know, when you're dealing with such tiny fractions, and then at the same time, you're then having to judge when the ball is actually played. They've solved that problem supposedly in this World Cup by adding a sensor to a ball uh, to the ball, which allows them to tell the, exactly when the ball has been kicked, which is then allowing them to tell exactly when the sort of should be the player should be judged whether or not they're offside yeah. or not. That's then assuming that you're perfectly syncing the the information that you're receiving from that ball with the frame by frame video footage that you're looking at. Maybe they've somehow mastered this technology. I very much doubt that they have. So the fact that there has to be a kind of a decent margin of error in that system, and then you're judging it based on you know fractions of millimeters at times, that that to me just doesn't seem right. There's just we're getting lost in an area of the sport we just don't need to be involved in. I, I guess, <laughs> but at, at, but again, I think I'd rather have at least a rule that is a cut and dry rule than what you're saying with the shirt pulling and, and the, the yeah. fouls in the, in those, because that, that is, is just so frustrating because you're right. I mean, when Harry Maguire got tackled, even the, even the commentators kind of said like, Oh, we thought they were kind of going to crack down on this. That seems significant enough to me based off of what they had said they were going to call. And I'm surprised they're not calling it. And then, like you said, you know, 60 minutes later, you see, uh, a, a shirt pull tug from the back that wasn't even it didn't do much it didn't pull him down or anything it just maybe slowed him up a little bit it was he grabbed his shirt you know like and that you're gonna call that's that's what i hate about officiating and that's across all sports that's not just you know european football the the inconsistencies and you know like it's it's very similar to roughing the passer nowadays where one ref calls slapping his head roughing the passer another one won't even think of calling it you know it's it gets very frustrating yeah and and it's the inconsistency that drives people crazy but i guess then on maybe one final match sort of response or kind of takeaway to this you know opening few fixtures of the world cup i i guess it's worth me i'll just start getting all the england fans just that little bit excited you know because that was just such an impressive first, you know, complete performance from from the team to see a number of players coming in, you know, different players getting goals, attacking front foot football. It's it's just great to see. Yeah, it was. And I, I, I definitely played that after that match was over. <laughs> I had to go to the phone and, and play it just to get myself all pumped up. It was exciting to watch, you know, and I... I asked both you and Ollie when we had our preview whether there was some concern that coming into this England looked you know looked a little stale as they were playing those last few matches you know they weren't scoring very much they had a a few lackluster performances but then to come out and and put six on the board was was very impressive and and they looked they there could have been more you know they they could have had eight <laughs> yeah they could have scored more and it was a pretty complete performance you know obviously Iran scored two goals in both could have been avoided, but I don't think you want to be too overly critical. 
And it's also easy to be really dismissive. It's just Iran. And I, I look, I'm not really trying to set the England's fans' expectations for like, this is a guaranteed World Cup win now. But, you know, Argentina would have gone into today's match saying it's just Saudi Arabia. And look at how that turned out. You have to beat these teams. Yesterday went perfectly for England in the sense that you have a very convincing victory that they can take a lot of positives from. And then the draw in the Wales-USA match means they're now in a position where they need one win from their remaining two matches to be guaranteed to go through. And they're in a very strong position to win the group. So it was kind of everything you would have asked for pretty much. You maybe would have said a clean sheet would have been nice. You might have said Harry Kane getting a goal would have been nice. You might have even said Harry Kane having a shot on target would have been nice. But, every, you know, apart from that, to have other players getting goals is, uh, you know, nice to see. And that will just breed confidence within the team. The fact that they were then also to make it, able to make a number of substitutions pretty early on to rest some players, to give a few more players the opportunity to get some World Cup experience, also a benefit. Yeah, so. cheer. Cheers to Calum Wilson to Callum. tell Eddie to shove it and uh, get a nice assist, a nice unselfish assist. <laughs> yeah, it was unselfish, kind of surprising. You know, I think it's the, it's the correct decision to make. But I th- in a way, there w- there'd be some purists out there who would say, if you're a real goal scorer, that's not a pass that you make. And that the, sometimes you do need a bit of selfishness if you're going to be a sort of truly great goal scorer. And look, it w- in that moment... I'm not, I'm, I'm not one of those people who would level that criticism at him. But, you know, you you don't want a player bearing down on goal who their first thought is to kind of look around to see if they're able to square the ball for, an, you know, an easier finish. You do want people with a bit of kind of ruthlessness in them. But, uh, no, aside from that, everything went went to plan, really. And I guess this World Cup overall not going to plan for Qatar. You know, we discussed it in our World Cup preview, so much criticism being leveled at them. Uh, and a number of media outlets continuing to be critical of them throughout the World Cup. I guess one thing that is raising a few eyebrows are the attendances at these matches. I don't know if you've seen any of these statistics, but the opening match had a, 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 an official, officially reported attendance of 67,372 in a stadium with a capacity of only 60,000. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, and the stadium was like half empty when they showed it. Get out of here. Then then the England-Iran match, an attendance of 45,334 in a, in a cap- stadium with a capacity of 40,000. Uh, <laughs> Senegal. Over- Did you see that fans couldn't get in? Yeah. Some of the fans, their tickets they just randomly disappeared in, on the app. Yeah. They eventually got in. But that, how panicked would you be if you go up there and your ticket just literally disappears off of your app? <laughs> well, especially there was probably some people in that line who were going through that experience and maybe were Liverpool supporters who had attended the Champions League final. And that, if that's... <laughs> Not again! <laughs> yeah, if that's maybe your back-to-back on live sporting events you've attended, that could have there could be some PTSD there. Uh, and then in the Sen- Senegal-Netherlands match, an official attendance of 41,721 in a stadium with a capacity of 40,000. And in the USA-Wales match, in an official attendance of 43,418 in a stadium with an official capacity of 40,000. So, And I think today in the Argentina-Saudi uh, Arabia match, there were something like 8,000 more people than there were seats, according to official statistics. So Qatar might not be getting all of the press coverage that they would have wanted, but somehow they are sneaking thousands of extra people into these matches. Like the craziest part too, is when you look at the stadium, they're not full. (laughs) Well, and look, that might not be, because I mean, I don't think that's how you take an official attendance, right? That's always one of those things. It's 
tickets sold or, you know what I mean? Like that's, it's like when in re in other sports, right? See season ticket sales. Like those people are counted as attending every match. So you can have attendance. Oh, yeah. You can okay. have discrepancies. I'll, between I'll, I'll give you that. And, but if you're going to go over the, the capacity of the stadium, and then when you look at the stadium and it's barely three quarters full, then I call BS. If you told me it's just at capacity, Maybe okay. There's some people just didn't show up. Well, over capacity. No. Well, way. the match that had the really bad attendance that was more in the opening match where they just left. You know, like people streamed out when it was clear Qatar were going to lose. I think the bigger criticism so far has just been the atmosphere in the games themselves has not been great. The only match that seemed to have a very good atmosphere really so far was the Argentina Saudi Arabia match for maybe understandable reasons. The USA Wales match, the Welsh fans were pretty lively, but you know, it's it just very silent. You could maybe give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they don't have the microphones set up in the right ways, which sometimes new stadiums aren't. You know, like they've not configured all of that correctly, so you're you're not getting the same atmosphere that's actually in the stadium being translated to the the television viewing experience. But I, uh, it's it's just very quiet and. You know, the England match, for example, just felt like you were watching some weird friendly taking place. Like there was absolutely no atmosphere in that. Probably not helped by the fact that England killed the game off fairly quickly, but still, uh, it's not not great. So, Eddie, 6-2. Is that the highest scoring World Cup match ever? Well, certainly not. Do you want to guess at what it is? Um, just following up on our World Cup preview where we had some nice uh, World Cup facts. I cannot think of one off the top of my head that was definitely higher scoring, but I'm sure they're... they're you were not alive. <laughs> Does it count then? It was June 26, 1954. Austria 7, Switzerland 5. Okay, that, that record's probably not going to be beaten. No. But oh yeah, and look, I mean, that's the thing is, is it's easy to, as an England fan to pick some holes into this and people should, you know, you don't want to dampen expectations, but you do want to keep them in check. But, you know, scoring six goals in a, in a major tournament is an, is an impressive achievement against pretty much anyone. Iran are also, look, the FIFA World Cup rankings, uh, FIFA rankings, sorry, are complete nonsense. Like the fact that they try and have, you know, like in their goal of not having it be European and South American centric. They allow teams who would just never like couldn't hold a candle to some of the mediocre European sides to be ranked pretty highly in the, and we, we saw that yesterday, Iran are ranked 20th in the world and England beat them six, two. So man, are England good. I know. (laughs) You know, former Co-host Sam sent me a message, a statistic we did not include in our World Cup preview, but Group B, England's group, is the only group in which all four teams are ranked in the top 20 in the world. Wrong. I said it. Oh, you did say it? Oh, I just wasn't listening to you then. (laughs) And he wasn't either. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I said that when we did. I said in World Cup rankings, they're all in the top 20. I said, well, we can. I could have sworn I said it. Maybe. We will go back and check the records and I'll... We'll see you for the next episode. Sam's just stealing my facts and saying <laughs> I didn't say them. <laughs> but yeah, there's some interesting ties coming up in the World Cup. And obviously before we, before, I guess we'll record our next episode before the USA. Oh, maybe we won't actually. More likely to do it afterwards. 
So we'll have some reaction to the England USA match in our next episode and some of the other big, bigger ties that are going to take place. But, you know, it's, it's nice to have the world cup going, even if it still feels a little bit weird with the time of year that it yeah. is. I, I mean, it just does make this to be a really phenomenal week between of football and football, I guess, mostly are the two main sports that are still being played that are exciting at this point, because you'll have Thanksgiving football, American football, which is always great to watch to, you know, eat, eat a big meal and just watch American football. But then you can cap that by having the World Cup on before early during the day. So you have a full day of, you know, important matches to watch. And then you have rivalry week for college football this weekend. So you have some big games there, notably Michigan, Ohio State. Uh, and then, you know, you got the NFL back on Sunday and then World Cup going all the way through every day. So it's it's a lot of sports to watch in a time where you kind of have the time to because you have a few days off for the Thanksgiving holiday. If you're American, yes. If you're not, who gives a for, shit? For most of the world, <laughs> for most of the world, this is not a period in which we're getting holidays. But but yes, for the percentage of our listeners that are American, this is great timing. And on that note, maybe we do a little bit of a quick reaction to the, the weekend NFL fixtures. Not Not that many talking points to really come out of this week. There weren't a huge number of surprises. A few close games, a few really dull games. Notably, I guess the Patriots Jets game, which was had a combined six points until the final couple of seconds of the game. Um, but the Bills kind of managed to refine some form over the course of that match. Their offense looked a little like it had woken up slightly after it looked like they might have been in trouble against the the Browns for a bit. The Eagles somehow managed to to win, even though it looked as if they were about to have consecutive defeats after most, including us, thought that they were going to go to the, the full season undefeated. And then, I mean, what else What else is there really to pick out from, from this weekend? I, the the, the Cowboys mean, me, demolishing you, you, the Vikings? Yeah, I, I think for me, you talked about two teams right there who some would argue are the top AFC and NFC team, but I think this week showed me who the top AFC and NFC teams are. And I think... You know, say watching it. the Chiefs. Say it, say it, Frank. Say it, Frank. Watching the Chiefs. Say it, Frank. Watching the Chiefs. Say it, Frank. <laughs> watching the Chiefs come back against the Chargers almost so methodically. Like, you watched it, and I honestly said, I wonder how long it's going to take for them to, to get the lead here. And it, they just come through game after game. I mean, Mahomes might make some bad throws and might make some plays that he doesn't need to make and makes them, you know, like you say, look tougher than they are. But when it comes down to it, man, he is just so clutch. And he's, we've talked about Josh Allen, and maybe he's not as clutch. And I think this shows he's just not. And at the end of the day, I want Mahomes and the Chiefs to win a game before I pick the Bills. And then I think on the NFC, the Cowboys, no, I'll have to say, the Niners, the Niners offense looked very good. I was quite impressed with the way they're just able to spread it out and in a game where McCaffrey didn't even have the touchdown, which is crazy to think about, that they had, what, four TDs and McCaffrey didn't have one or five TDs? Four or five. Yeah. And McCaffrey didn't even have one. But the way they're able to spread it out with Kittle, Samuel, Ayuk, McCaffrey, it's, it's dangerous. And that was a good Garoppolo performance, and it's still a worry for me. But I think the more you have McCaffrey in put into your offense, 
And the more you can have either just a run with McCaffrey or a short pass that doesn't require Jimmy G to really do much, it just makes it that much safer of an offense. So I, they they look dominant. And the defense, I mean, Bosa is just a savage at this point. Like, he's just killing people out there. Uh, so, yeah, I think right now for me, this week showed the Chiefs and the Niners. And although I, I will give the Cowboys some credit, they absolutely just demolished the Vikings. That was that was pretty impressive. Although I don't think the Vikings realized they were playing an actual game. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I agree with you in the Chiefs. I think Mahomes might hold a unique status in this year's NFL. He is the only quarterback who, if his team is down four points with two minutes left, I have kind of total confidence in the fact that he's going to drive down the field. I don't think there's any other quarterback at the moment in the NFL who I feel that way about, which is strange to say because I would have normally, you know, for the last 20 years, I think you would have always picked out two or three quarterbacks who have that at any one moment in time. You know, you would have always felt that way about Brady. You would have felt that way about Manning in the past. You know, Drew Brees would have had it for a while. There's a, there's a host of names that would have been in that category. And there's plenty of quarterbacks right now who I'd give a chance to, who I wouldn't be surprised if they pull it off, but I don't get, you know, like when the bills get the ball back and we've seen it in recent weeks, needing to drive, you know, go drive the length of the field. I don't trust that Josh Allen is going to do it. Whereas Mahomes, I do, even if obviously sometimes he's not going to, but you just have that sense of inevitability, as you said. And in the case of the Niners, yeah, I think you're right. With Christian McCaffrey involved and with Kittle healthy, it simplifies the game so much for him and it allows him to remove some of the mistakes he is prone to make because he always has these kind of safety valve options available of just checking it down to Kittle or McCaffrey, and he just knows that. And I think that makes him more confident and makes him a better quarterback. And their offense is just, if they stay healthy, has so many weapons, as you said, that they can afford to have a mediocre Jimmy Garoppolo performance and still have a have really good offensive production. And I think that's the kind of scary thing if you're playing against them. You've got a really good defense on one side of the ball and you have an offense with so many things you've got to stop that even if Garoppolo is just turning up and kind of delivering the the standard like B minus Garoppolo performance, it could still be four or five touchdowns. It could still be 30, 35 points. And that's the first time that that's been true really in this Garoppolo era, era Niners sort of team. Yeah, if there was ever an offense where you could kind of just plug and fill a quarterback, that I think right now is is probably the only offense in the NFL. Maybe the Tennessee Titans. Uh, you know, not very many offenses in the NFL can you just plug in a mediocre quarterback and know that you're you still have the right kind of offense that it's not going to hurt you not having a, a high caliber quarterback. And then one of the other talking points coming out of this weekend's NFL games, I don't know if you saw one of your favorites, Jameis Winston hit some headlines with some complaints he had over the fact that he has not got his starting job back in New Orleans after his injury. And he, his quote in the locker room was, it hurts my soul. I lost my job due to injury. And the policy has always been, you don't lose your job because of injury. I kind of get where he's coming from. Normally a quarterback. Ask Drew Bledsoe. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> normally, normally a quarterback does get their job back. But I think most of the time, 
he's kind of referring to the idea that you're it's starting quarterbacks who absolutely have the job locked down. You know, like he it wasn't certain coming into this season that he was definitely always going to be the starter. You know, he's not one of those quarterbacks. So I think it would be a pretty long list if you really looked through, you know, the last 10, 15 years. I think you'd probably find a lot of quarterbacks who got hurt and then never really got the starting job back until some other event happened, whether that was their replacement losing form or their replacement getting injured themselves. Yeah, and it's it's tough too because he is the he is that quarterback where he wasn't playing awful, but he wasn't playing great. I think they were what one and two when he went down. So it's not as if he is a elite level quarterback that's automatically getting the job back, but it's also not like he's you know, I don't know, bottom five quarterback. He's in that middle ground where I think, unfortunately, if the team is starting to get some wins under them and their offense is starting to pick up with another quarterback, you kind of have to stick with that quarterback. He is not the type of quarterback that demands you put them back in because you never really know what you're going to get with Winston. You might get a great game. You might get seven interceptions. Yeah, so when he went out injured after three games, uh, he had a QB rating of 79.5, so that's below average. He had four touchdowns and... Wait, 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 wait. A, a QBR or, or, or a passer rating? Oh, that's his passer rating. Because a QBR of 79 would be great. That's uh, his passer rating, yeah. Okay, yeah, pa- that, as a passer rating, that's not that good. <laughs> and, uh, and he had four touchdowns and five interceptions. So, yeah, you know, I, the only thing he might point to as being pretty good, he had 858 yards through three games, so... He'd probably argue that that's pretty good, but but he's a slinger. That's what he does. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's the Saints. They they kind of t- tend to put up pretty good offensive statistics. I know different in new coaching era and stuff, but still, uh, yeah, I don't think you can look at those statistics and say that was a guy who was absolutely going to get his job back. I think when you get hurt after three games with more interceptions than you have touchdown passes, you'd probably, if you had a, an honest conversation with someone else, say. I might not be starting as soon as I'm healthy. But I guess that pretty much wraps up the reaction to the NFL. Do you have any other quick topics to discuss before we shift things over to the interview with Liam Plunkett? I actually had one little random thing. Did you see the Blake Martinez uh, Pokemon card article? Uh, This is going to stun you, but no. Oh, so Blake Martinez, the linebacker for the was the uh was I say I was gonna say Oakland Raiders for the Vegas Raiders retired pretty abruptly about two or three weeks ago and about a week before he retired he put a very rare Pokemon card up for auction that estimates had said could sell for up to 1.7 million dollars he ended up only getting 672,000 but there is some speculation that this is part of the reason he retired was because he's now going to get into the Pokemon card business. And that considering he sold this card for almost 700000 that it's quite the lucrative market if you have the money to invest and then turn over. Um, and he's apparently during COVID, he got really into back into Pokemon cards because he loved them during his childhood. And he got back into them and he started doing the where you pay someone to find you a box of unopened and you do the live openings and he was doing all of that. And that's where he opened up this rare, super rare card where apparently only 50 of them exist in the world. Um, 
So yeah, it's it's quite a turnaround for someone who was a, a really good linebacker to just kind of suddenly retire. I mean, maybe it was because the Raiders are atrocious and he didn't want to deal with that anymore. But uh, maybe it has something to do with uh, having more fun selling Pokemon cards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a topic that I could have in many ways less interest in. I don't mean that in terms of you bringing it up, but I've never liked Pokemon, even as a kid. And we're both at the generation where, you know, Pokemon, like we're kind of prime Pokemon generation, I would say. Yeah, um, I like Pokemon. I was never, never owned a Pokemon card in my life. Never played a Pokemon video game. Just wasn't, never watched the TV show. What a sad, depressing <laughs> life you had, Eddie. <laughs> <laughs> the more we hear about you, the more sad and depressing your life was. <laughs> and uh, And never never been into unboxing videos so the original content didn't interest me and the and then the kind of newer content doesn't either the unboxing videos is a little strange that that i can't get down for <laughs> i have no interest in just watching a random rich person spend a crazy amount of money on an unopened box of cars and watching him open them and get excited as he almost makes his money back <laughs> i mean in some ways it's such a from a fandom perspective, right? It's so pure because you're just so excited for someone else's success. Like you get absolutely nothing out of it. But when you do see the chats of the people like really reacting with excitement, there's just nothing in the world where that I get that worked up. But uh, the the only part of it I do enjoy though is sometimes they'll sell some of like the packs within the box. And it's really funny to watch someone like get a pack that really, really sucks. And then the next pack is like this phenomenal pack where it's like, oh, that guy made 3,000. This guy made 450,000. Yeah. That was like, I watch, I enjoy watching people's disappointment in that regard. And you think <laughs> I had the depressing childhood. You're the one out there open, sort of actively <laughs> seeking other people's pain. <laughs> To try and bring you some pleasure. Um, because I'm so happy oh, yeah. that sometimes I need to know what it feels like to be disappointed. Speaking of things I didn't experience in my childhood, I just as a one quick note, I was speaking to someone the other day who was stunned that I never went to Disneyland or Disney World as a kid, that I went for the first time. It doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> that I think I went for the first time when I was 19 with a group of friends. But up until that point, and I say this as someone who in my childhood years lived in both California. So obviously had an option there, although I wasn't in the LA region, so it wasn't close and in Paris. So I've had, you know, two relatively easily, easily accessible Disney parks. And I did not attend either until I was 19 years old. This person was stunned and felt actually genuinely disappointed for me, which I didn't feel was necessary. I mean, I just picture you in your childhood just in like a collared shirt with a sweater vest with <laughs> a chair faced in the corner of, of your room facing a wall reading the encyclopedia. That's, that's the childhood I picture you having. <laughs> None of that is accurate, but I, I'll let you on that with that creative image. I guess we can move things over to the, to the interview with Liam Plunkett and the discussion about cricket and the upcoming Major League Cricket season. Welcome back to the Big Chill Podcast. We're now delighted to be joined by this week's guest, Liam Punk Plunkett, former England international cricketer, currently trying to develop cricket in, in the United States. Liam, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, no problem. Uh, nice to speak to you both. Uh, 
as I said, I think in the brief introduction before we, we press play here, it's nice to speak to uh, people from different countries about cricket. So I'm, I'm excited to, to speak to you guys. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a natural jumping off point, because I guess a lot of our listeners, even if they're really familiar with you and your career, might be a little bit surprised to see that you're in the US as part of the sort of developing Major League Cricket. Obviously, you have family ties to the US. What in, what sort of made you make the decision to go there and be part of professional cricket? And how is that going so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the back end of my career was Surrey, uh, which is an amazing county. Uh, obviously, they won the championship this year. For people who don't know about cricket, that's kind of a big thing. Uh, anyway, towards the back end, I got approached by the guys from Major League Cricket uh, with an opportunity to jump across. Uh, and, and it was like, very exciting towards the back end of my career. Maybe I could have played another couple of years back at home in, in UK, but with the possibility to jump on board with a new organization was something so frightening, but also very exciting uh, to build uh, a brand new cricket structure here. Uh, to be part of that was, as I said, is I, I jumped on it with, uh, with both feet. So far, so good. I've been here for a year now. Uh, I bounce around. I think everyone who works for major leagues is a bit of a Swiss army knife in terms of roles and responsibilities. So mine starts from grassroots working in Philadelphia's academy, Major League Cricket Academy, uh, where the numbers are growing by the day. Uh, I then go on to being like a head coach for the major league team. Uh, so if we have, uh, I think we've got 40 to 50 uh, professional cricketers across in the United States now, which a uh, lot. Some are from here, some are guys who played in South Africa, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, etc. Uh, so when we do play against national teams like USA, Scotland, Nepal, etc., etc., I, I get to manage these guys and coach these teams, which is also good. Um, and then in America right now, in terms of the structure and facilities for cricket, if we played on baseball facilities, diamonds, then it'd be absolutely perfect. Cricket would be rolled out. It, I, I could imagine it would be a professional sport uh, like a, a county or franchise by now but that that's the issue we have to build and then come up with ways how, how can we get our skills up to the best standard we can in the facilities we have until a structure is put in place and that's a part of my uh, job is to, to figure out how we get these guys high performance facilities and practice while everything gets built around them so it's a challenge but it's also as I said very rewarding to be in uh, to be involved in Major League Cricket at Ground Zero. And so the league itself is launching next summer, correct? That's when everything gets fully underway? Yeah, I uh, managed to go down to Dallas uh, where the new stadium is being built. Uh, so we did a like a sort of an opening and announced the dates of uh, July 13th to July 30th uh, with the six franchise teams playing in that competition, which is going to be awesome. We're going to bring across some of the best players in the world. We're targeting the, the top uh, top tier of professional cricketers around the world to be involved. So I, I don't feel like we're going to have an issue in then getting people to the crowds. Uh, sorry, to getting the crowds to the stadiums. It, it's going to be, uh, as I said, a, a big show. And I'm just hopefully we have everything in order by then. It's going to be the first year. So we want to do it really well. And and what's the, what's the format going to be? That's just purely T20 cricket. Okay, it's, uh, cool. Yeah, T20 cricket, we feel like it uh, hits the... I think it'll go over well, right, with Americans. I think that's... You, you get. I think you get a lot of excitement, and it's... Because I think a lot of... I used to love baseball, right? And I think baseball, for me now, is becoming such a 
kind of like a boring sport to watch at times because it's so long. You have to have invest sometimes four hours into it. And I think with a with a T20 format, you get a lot of action and it's it's pretty quick. So I think most Americans will love that. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, we have T10 now, but in terms of uh, like a, a format, it's T20s hits the sweet spot. It's pretty similar. It's less time than baseball. Uh, depends how many how much overtime is going on in baseball, I guess. But it's uh, it is exciting. I know you're going to have your your baseball purist, which is great. Like I like baseball, but also be nice if they maybe they did say I'm going to give this cr- cricket a chance uh, because as you said in in baseball, average home runs is is what like I don't know the true stats behind it four or five a game maybe i don't know if, and then, if you're lucky yeah yeah maybe i would say probably like closer to one yeah. one to two and then you <laughs> yeah a t20 and then obviously six runs are the same as a, a home run is what 20 30 a game sometimes some sometimes one guy hits 10 you know so it's uh it, if, if we get people into the ground and the wickets are really good and the ball's flying into the stands and as a bowler as i said i'm coming towards the back end of my career so i don't mind being the uh Lamb to the slaughter. <laughs> he getting hit into the, into the crowds. It brings more people in. So it's, uh, yeah, it's exciting. T20's right, uh, Frank. It's uh, it's probably the best format. I guess the issue, sometimes when I talk to Americans about cricket, and I'll often be in places watching cricket where you'll have Americans be sort of intrigued by what they see. I think there's, a lot of Americans just assume that cricket's way too complicated for them to understand. That there's this kind of built-in factor that they think it's, super complex and it would take them, you know, years of studying. And I kind of went through the process with Frank. I'm a big believer that in like 30 minutes of watching a match of cricket with someone explaining the rules to you, you can have a pretty good level of understanding. You're not all the complexities and the nuances and the tactics and stuff, but fundamentally you get what's happening. How much of the goal of major league cricket is to bring in totally new audiences kind of to expand cricket to a wider American audience or to appeal to, there's obviously so many people living in the US who will have had ties to countries where cricket is a really popular sport and already be familiar with it. Where's the balance there in terms of trying to just, you know, kind of the existing audience that is already there versus really turn cricket into a kind of a more well-known sport across the US? Yeah, I mean, as you said, in terms of the cricket fans over here, I think we've got 20 million plus cricket fans in the United States. It's such a big market to hit. But it would be silly not to produce something that uh, intrigues uh, people who've never seen much cricket before and how you go about it then that's up to the marketing team I'm guessing right that's uh, that's what they get paid for and it's it's so exciting but it's the people who've never heard of your Joss Butlers and the Virat Kohli's I'm not sure Virat's going to be involved but that's obviously a massive name of cricket so is that you saying Joss Butler will be involved potential for these people <laughs> like wow <laughs> it's not this year, not the next year, but I'm saying for the people who've not heard of the bigger names, uh, it doesn't matter who comes across it. It could be the likes of the best in the world. Uh, Americans don't know these guys. Uh, so it's, yeah, however people are going to do it, right? It's it's corporate, but you get people intrigued by doing the corporate events at the stadiums and showing that the stadium is actually really cool. It's, it's a mix between the baseball in, in terms of, it is a bit, an old baseball field that's converted to a cricket field in Dallas. Uh, so it's it, it, it's cool. The concept's so exciting, and I think we should keep the heritage of baseball in this in this thing. And you know, have a have a sort of crossbreed stadium. That's the way that you get the Americans in. Do the hot dogs, do the beers, and do all that kind of one dollar hot dog nights and all that kind of thing. And then it makes it unique from the outset for people coming across to America. It's not another T Twenty league. It's something in America, which is the biggest home of sport in the world, right? With America, do it bigger and better than anyone else. 
Yeah, and obviously there was a success of like the Cricket All-Stars, the thing that Shane Warne and Tendulkar did, right? Yeah. A decade ago or whatever at Yankee Stadium. That that was a success, I suppose, as a one-off, not as a established league. But yeah, it's, I think it's really exciting. I guess kind of then transitioning more into your career, obviously this is part of this development of franchise cricket and the idea that people travel the world playing for, you know, a, f- a handful of weeks or a couple of months or, you know, different teams and different leagues all over the place. That kind of came into pl- play sort of during your career. How different do you think your career would have been if you were sort of emerging now as a cricketer? Like how different of a path would your own, you know, what would you have opted for trying to go to as many places in the world to play year round in T20 leagues? Or would you do you think you would have still stayed in kind of the longer format of the game for <laughs> some part of it? I'm not sure because I guess uh, it's so hard now because the rewards are so big. Cricket's obviously a passion. You play for fun. But if you're successful at uh, white ball, like uh, Will Smeadner, the guy who's obviously just signed a white ball contract back in the UK, uh, it's it's tricky, to be honest with you. If someone says you've got champ or cricket and you're maybe not doing well at that time and someone offers you your salary in a month's work, then it's hard to turn that down. But it depends what your aspirations are. Do you want to play test cricket? Uh, are you coming towards maybe the last four or five years of your career as an opportunity to jump on board and earn big money? But I'm, honestly, it's it's. I guess it's a difficult question. I love my time playing four-day cricket, some of the best times of my life and where I got my basics from and my uh, stock ball and just your out-and-out cricket skills was from playing four-day cricket. I was very, very, very fortunate to, to win four championships, two with Yorkshire, two with Durham. And as I said, in terms of that lifestyle, you, you're playing with guys and it's like a game of chess. It's four days of slogging it out and then you win a championship game on the fourth day. And that's one of the best ways to win. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I got to do that. And as I said, it'd be a difficult situation now. So, And then I guess, I know Frank really wants to talk about one match that will probably go down as one of the high points of your career in 2019 with the World Cup, but kind of working your way through the career. I have a question more generally about your involvement in England. In the time that you, you know, England have had this rapid transformation in white ball cricket from being not particularly successful to now consistently being you know, up there with the best in the world, if not consistently the best in the world, obviously with the T20 success a week ago as well. From a player's perspective, what did you see change within the England setup that resulted in that sort of rapid improvement? I guess the easy way to look at it would just be from a talent perspective, but there has to be something more significant in terms of kind of consistent success that stretched across generations of players and even generations of coaches. I think uh, a timing thing was a massive part of it. You had a great leader in terms of Owen Morgan, who worked well with Trevor Bayliss, the head coach. And I think Trevor would say that Morgs was the leader of that ship. Morgs had a good relationship with uh, Brendan McCullum, obviously test coach now. And I think he got ideas from Brendan in terms of uh, you back your players, be aggressive. And I think that sort of started the ball rolling. And I think, yeah, as you said, at that time, there was a lot of youth coming through, like Stokesies and Josh has played a lot, but all these guys like J-Roy, uh, Bearstow, and then obviously other guys a bit more experienced, like myself and Rashid, and it was just a collaboration at the right time. Also, these guys, the guys in them squads have been playing worldwide in competitions, in white ball competitions, in the IPL, and Pakistan League, and Bangladesh, and the skills were getting better and better and better. 
And, and I think it was that. I think Morgs had, he just came and it pretty much, obviously more detailed than this, but just back yourself. Uh, what you practice in the, in the nets, go out and back yourself to do that. We are more aggressive. Uh, we could, we, we, unfortunately, we could be more aggressive in terms of the batting side because we batted all the way down to 11. You had Adol Rashid sometimes coming in 10-11, who's had 10 first-class hundreds, uh, which obviously can't relate that to baseball. It's like having a guy coming in at the back who's got such a massive average and so skillful. Uh, might not be using the right terminology there, so I apologize. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then in terms of bowling-wise, I think sometimes in one-day cricket and T20 cricket, we're, we're quite negative, but Morgs encouraged everyone to be uh, be aggressive, have a new batsman's come in, then keep the fielders in, keep your catches in, and make them hit past your inner circle kind of thing, and that put pressures on pressure on batsmen and picked up wickets. And we all just bought, we all just bought into it. it. It got to a point where... You wouldn't need to organise team meals. All of a sudden, there'd be a group on the a message on the group, and all of a sudden, there's 15, 20 guys having dinner together, and it wasn't organised. So that's very, very uh, fortunate that we just clicked and gelled as a group. And it was, as I say, some of the best times of my life playing in that group, uh, playing in a, a 50 over game somewhere like Trent Bridge, where you bowl first and you manage to bowl nicely. Then you just go and have some lunch, put your uh, slippers on and watch the guys go to work right front front row and it was it's amazing to be part of that and looking back very fortunate and i'm happy not just the world cup because that was obviously a dream come true but to be involved in that squad of, of uh cricketers was amazing well before we get on to that world cup itself then i guess you're kind of mentioning there the sort of mentality and the approach and some of the tactics that were implemented now that you're sort of transitioning into a, a coaching role what takeaways do you have there and how difficult it is it you're you're obviously talking about world-class players who maybe it's a little bit easier to implement tactics mm-hmm. like that when you know the people in all of those relevant positions are almost as good as they can get how are you trying to bring some of that sort of ethos over to then what you're doing now in your in your new role i think you're right when i first came across uh i was like oh just the guys can just go and express themselves and do this and do that but also without being too disrespectful, that they're not the calibre of what the England international team are. And that's been built up of years and years in practice and uh, being successful, uh, not being successful, learning. Do you know what I mean? It's been through all ups and downs to get to that point where, okay, you go out and express yourself. And I think it's you're building again with a new group of players who probably don't have the tools just yet to be that successful that early. So it's then stepping back and trying to help and facilitate good training uh, groups to and do as much as I can with sometimes a bit less resources. So it's also a learning curve for me. I, I'm going to bring in stuff I've learned with them guys. Uh, keep it, keeping it simple as possible. Backing yourself it, and believing in yourself is huge in sport. But you got to do the hard work behind the scenes to to get to that point. Uh, so I believe in the guys working hard. Uh, we communicate together because it's very ground zero, as I said. But then we go out to play. We back the skills we've been practicing. So that's one thing I will take away from the England guys. And I think these the group of guys that were successful, that weren't afraid for, to ask for help. If they didn't know something, they would ask a question. They wouldn't be have egos where they would just be stubborn and not learn. It's like, okay, I don't know this. Maybe you know it and vice versa. And it switches on his head and it's the other way around in terms of questioning. But it's, uh, yeah, just be open to learn. Uh, learn from someone who's just come to the game. Like I might learn from someone who's come from baseball, who picks up an idea. 
and all of a sudden it'll just transfer to cricket. You learn from a, a kid who's eight years old who's been watching some sort of sports or something and he's developed a new shot or a new way of throwing it. It's all ideas you have to take on board as a coach. That as a player, you might just have drifted past it because you were focusing on a, a game or something. Now it makes sense. And it's also that delicate balance, right? It's like some people accuse like Steph Curry of having ruined baseball in some respects, right? Because now like every little kid's out there trying to shoot three-pointers from as soon as they get the ball everywhere. And you're trying to want to obviously encourage people to aspire to like to see incredible athletes on TV and do it. But at the same time, we can't all do what they do. Um, but yeah, I'll let Frank, I know we'll, we're going to talk about one of those well, high okay. high moments, but yeah, Frank, I'll let you maybe turn. Well, I, I think before we get to the to the World Cup final, I mean, I'd like to hear about your first call up to the England squad and what that was like oh. and, and you know, the excitement and kind of how, how it went. <laughs> uh, I'm testing my memory now. No, it's obviously, I've, I obviously remember that moment very well. I just played, I think it was my maybe a second sort of year for uh, Durham uh, in the northeast of England. Uh, and it was the year of the Ashes 2005. Uh, and I was like everyone else in the UK, glued to the TV, watching my heroes play in an unbelievable test series that England were uh, winners. And yeah, and all of a sudden I was going well, just mind my business, doing, being quite successful for Durham, taking away, taking wickets. And then I... Uh, I got a call up. I think it was the night of a presentation evening at the end of the year. And yeah, all of a sudden it was, yeah, bang, bang. And then I was starting to play next to uh, Kevin Peterson and all these guys heading towards Pakistan. So it was a bit of a blur, but obviously a dream came true. The first the first part of my uh, England career, I think I've said this before, I was sort of happy being there and taking part. It, it felt like I'm so lucky to be here. And I think it's sort of, even I had some success, uh, I think when I came back after a bit of time out, I sort of looked at it like, well, I can actually win games for England. I wasn't lucky to be there. I've worked hard. Like, why can't I be the match winner? And that was the kind of the thing that uh, switched for me. But going back to that question, yeah, it was 2005 and it was a call after the Ashes where I was very lucky enough to then jump on a plane and be with my heroes. I've just watched win uh, an Ashes series and then get shit-faced at Downing Street. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's one of the most. I mean, the flint off hangover and Peters, Kevin Peterson, right? It's it's some of the most famous hangovers in in history. What was that like? Did it was it as rough as it looked from an outwardly appearance? No, I think it was. It looked like them guys had played, and it was a massive success, and it wet the appetite, wet the appetite for cricket in the UK, and I'm sure it brought thousands of thousands to, of kids to be involved in the game again, and. As you said, it was a massive series and he had time off and they celebrated. So, yeah, good for them. So it's, uh, yeah. Now, now that, that switch you kind of mentioned about how, you know, you then kind of went from just being part of the team to, to being a, a huge contributor. Was that something that was just you mentally thinking about it? Or did you go back into like county cricket and, and, and other formats and started seeing that you were, you know, doing really well and dominating and, and kind of, doing well against the people that you're seeing in these, in these international competitions? Was it, was it kind of something like that where you were just gaining confidence or is it just internal and you kind of having to generate that confidence yourself? I think when I moved, it was a sort of transition. I was struggling with in my first part of my England career with consistency uh, through all, all sorts of things from outside technical and not really believing in myself and, 
uh, turning up, getting five for one day, and then going away and going for a hundred off. Do you know what I mean? It was loads of different things. Uh, and then I, I made the move to, to Yorkshire, which was nothing to do with Durham. I just felt a little bit stale. I'd been there since I was uh, in my late teens. Uh, and I appreciate everything they did for me, but a fresh start. And Jason Gillespie was head coach of Yorkshire. Uh, I guess it, guys don't know him. He's obviously a very successful Australian fastballer. Uh, came across and he was head coach of Yorkshire. So if I got approached by Yorkshire. So Jason Gillespie and Martin Moxon, who was then uh, at Yorkshire. He was currently my head coach at Durham. So I knew these guys already. I was actually born in Yorkshire as well. So it was nice to get that move across. Uh, so I signed with Yorkshire, but before I sort of went into pre-season, I came across to America, uh, then my girlfriend, now my wife, and I just trained really hard and I went, uh, got as fit as I can, turned back up in Yorkshire for nets and I think Jason Gillespie just said, listen, we back you. Uh, and then all of a sudden I got this pace and started bowling quick again. And with the confidence in the players and my age, I sort of matured a little bit. And then I think in terms of coming back in that England squad, I remember I sat down with a sport psychologist and he just said, at the end of the day, it's cricket. You can still be a, a good boyfriend, a good son, a good all this kind of stuff. And it sort of put things in my uh, perspective, like it, it is just a game. Sometimes we take it too serious uh, and you put too much pressure on yourself. So it was a mixture of those little things. How difficult is it too? Because you mentioned they're kind of stepping into a, into a dressing room that was filled with people who were sort of your heroes. I mean, that must be one of the challenges, kind of in the sort of imposter syndrome that people like to speak about a lot, right? Of, of kind of having such recognizable people around you who've inspired you and, and also just feeling as if it's awkward to suddenly be, have them next to you and be calling them a teammate, even though you spent a long time looking up to them and, and being inspired by them. Yeah, I was, I play, when I played for Durham, I played a lot of these guys county cricket, so it wasn't like the first time I'd seen them and I was in awe. Obviously, I respected them because they were superstars at that point, but I played with Paul Collingwood, Stephen Harmison, and other international players from different countries in the dressing room, so it wasn't, do you know what I mean? So I was familiar with international players. But that first series, everything was so brand new to me, and I was just excited to do every single thing. Uh, I would turn up and ball extra in the nets, and I just enjoyed the whole process. I didn't think about game time. I remember I was just here for practicing and then obviously I got the nod to play my first test and it, pretty, it got real pretty quick. So it got real pretty quick because I was facing Shaw Bakhtar who was bowling 97 miles an hour. So it, it definitely changed quickly. So uh, yeah, it, it was a bit of a blur that time and what was it 2022 now and the debut 2024 and it's, it seems like a couple of weeks back. I guess as an interesting note for our, I mean, most of our listeners are American. When you're facing 97 miles an hour, obviously, you know, you were, you know, capable batsman, but you know, not, wasn't your primary role. How much of what you were doing, I so less so in a test match, but certainly in a one-day game. How mm -hmm. much of what you're doing is premeditated when you're facing someone who's that quick? Test cricket's completely different, isn't it? Because it's they can keep coming at you a little bit, and if you back away and try and slog it, you look like you're very weak and you don't want to be involved in the game. So you have to have a technique to be able to face it. In which I did, I loved to bat, and I was very fortunate. My uh, one of my main strengths was to pull, which is that I just got used to it. And one of the reasons is because playing in that first series in Pakistan, I think myself and Matthew Hoggard were the net testers, so they would just roll us out, and then here you go, go and face uh, all these net balls have come from all over Pakistan to ball uh, rockets at your head. So it's uh, I got used to that very quickly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you have to have that technique in white ball cricket. I, I enjoyed that batting and, you know, you sort of, you move around a little bit more. 
Uh, you're only allowed so many, obviously, bounces in both formats, but you generally know what they're going to do to you. Coming in at number eight and nine and being capable, are they going to go short your head so you're sort of you're ready to go, you know? So it's it's definitely difficult facing the short ball in red ball cricket. So I think, you know, we've, we've had cricketers on before, and, and one of the things that I think a lot of Americans don't realize is that there's a lot of trash talking going on. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think as, as a bowler, you're in a very difficult situation, especially as a fastball, I think you're in a very difficult situation where, you know, you're, you're going to be giving it to, to people at bat and, and can kind of talk some trash, but then you're going to have to get, get in front and kind of get it back. So what, what is that like? Were you, a, a, were you quiet when you were out there? Did you like to trash talk, you know, and, and, and was it effective? Did you think it was effective? Could you get in people's heads? What do you think? I don't know. I mean, I remember I played cricket with a West Indian guy and he just said, let the ball do the talking, which always stuck in my head. Uh, because as a bowler, like when I was on, when I was, I had a few years where I was bowling uh, 90s and I was bowling quick and intimidating. So I didn't feel like I need to say anything. Generally, I would say something when I was frustrated and a guy was playing me very easy. So uh, maybe the odd comment and stuff. As a youngster, you probably got intimidating with the guys, but it's all smoke and mirrors. At a certain point towards the back end, you're like, all right, if someone if I'm batting, I'm like, okay, like whatever. You got to go back because like the ball's always got to turn around and get back to his mark. So you're never gonna win, right? So it's like the few comments and just try and be aggressive with the ball and just sort of like be intimidating. As I said, there's there's plenty of guys who sledge you are very good with it. So I know a lot of guys with sledge and it's just pointless and it just comes across very dumb and stupid. So if you got a bit of wit about you, it, it obviously works and you get a bit of a laugh out of it. But yeah, definitely a lot of sledging. But that's also toned down a bit now with all the videos and uh, analysis and what you can say and what the stump mic picks up. So it's uh, you got to be very de delicate. Yeah, I was actually asking my fault. Was, is there anyone on the England team that you would say had some wit about them that would that would throw it around a little? <laughs> no, I mean, it's just the uh, a few of the sledges with Fred and Tino Best. That was a huge one. Hit the windows, Tino, and that, that was a cool one then. So when it when it sinks in like that, when you're sort of abusing him, but he was that first slip at the time, and then he runs past one and does something that Fred just sticks, uh, it, that comes across really well and makes for great content. Uh, there's been many ones like guys running up, but not even to the fact like they're abusing anyone. Completely different where people have been in a bad situation where they've run up to ball in the whites, and then obviously probably had something not great to eat the night before, and then whites have soon turned into darks. So there's been a few of them. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, there's plenty of stories, but in terms of uh, that's great general uh, banter and stuff, that just flies around because you play so much. You have to entertain yourself sometimes in a four-day game to keep that entertainment. And I guess I know we kind of have a dynamic, a sort of good cop, bad cop here, where Frank loves to bring up all the greatest moments of someone's career, and I kind of like to focus sometimes on some of the some of the more difficult ones. So before we go on to the, some of the highs, I guess one of the most challenging moments, in some ways, must have been the 2016. T20 World Cup final. Yeah. One of the most famous with the the four six consecutive sixes in the final over. What was that like sort of not being directly involved in that? Did you have at what moment did it feel like that had slipped away where it was a kind of inevitable outcome or even going into it, you know, before the fourth six gets hit, did mm. you feel like there was a possibility of salvaging the situation? Yeah, I mean all the way. I mean you get two dot balls in even after two three sixes, it changes the game, but Looking back now, is it seems so far away, but that was, I think, when we did get beat, it was like, look how far we've come compared to that previous World Cup. This squad's going places, just keep with the method. And that's what I'm saying when when I came across to America and I was saying to the guys, like, just go out and be yourself, be free. We'd already been through such highs and lows with England to be able to 
to back ourselves. What's the worst that's going to happen? You're going to get beat again. But also you've got a chance to be an absolute hero doing what you've been doing, practicing. We were so close at that point. If we won then, like who who, who knows what have happened? Would we just took it, like be more, not not arrogant and stuff. Okay, we, we're at the, we're the best team possible now. But we went from that team leaps and bounds and keep getting better and better and better. And you look at the T20 squad now, it's, it's a different breed. And sort of, obviously Stokes, I mean, done an incredible job in some respects of, for a lot of people, that would almost be a defining sort of involvement in the, in a, you know, kind of determining factor of a game. And since then has had so many incredible moments that, you know, that's almost like a, a small foot footnote in terms of his career. Mm. But if you had been in his position as a bowler, when it sort of starts to go wrong, and you will see obviously other teammates come up to give advice and things. In that moment, do you want someone to suggest the type of delivery you should be choosing, or would you rather just kind of think, "I I can save that. I know I don't want anyone else talking to me. I want to get to the back, you know, top of my mark and and get on with this." I guess sometimes as a bowler, like the balls that you want to bowl are just not coming out. They're just not feeling good in the hand. Like the run up might feel a little bit strange, and you just can't produce the ball that you want to bowl. Uh, it, as I said, it, it's a bit of a flashback. I'm not sure if Morg spoke to him a little bit, tried to slow it down. But I think, obviously, he was trying to bowl his Yorkers and he was missing. Uh, in the few rounds before that, he got wickets against uh, New Zealand, I think. Uh, but I'm sure in hindsight, he, he might have mixed it up a little bit. But also, you're the one bowling. As I said, sometimes it just doesn't feel good. When you watch baseball, the same. Sometimes a pitcher comes in and he's just he's struggling that day. Uh but yeah, there's always like it's always been easy sitting the guy who's behind a TV or me sitting at mid on mid off, and I'm not bowling that I'm not bowling that over. So I'm sure if he goes back, him um, I probably should have mixed it up a little bit there, or I might try to bowl diff, uh, like wider or like his legs or a bouncer. Like, but I guess it is what it is, right? So yeah, and I guess that that kind of brings us to the 2019 World Cup, and I guess going into that World Cup, what was the what was the mood with the team? I mean, how confident were you guys going into that? Because you said, you know, like you had that, you, you know, in the T20 final, you know, you had, you were building the confidence and building up as, as a squad. And then now going into this 19, you, you know, were you guys very confident that, you know, you becoming closer and closer and now the squad is getting better and better? Or were you still kind of, you know, playing it game by match by match? That's the thing when it comes to big tournaments. We got, um, we didn't get as far as we wanted in the ICC comp that was in England a year or two before. I think it was two years before that. I think Pakistan won that. Uh, but we were playing good cricket and we were beating people in series 4-1, 5-0. Like we were beating all the best teams in the world comfortably. We were the same. It, it is a cliche, but it's just take one game at a time, right? And it's, it's just knockout cricket's different. We've got to that World Cup backing ourselves to beat anyone on, on the day if we play our best cricket they play their best cricket we beat anyone that's how we thought about it but the training around the World Cup the guys were still trying to improve and trying to get better and uh, obviously you, you feel like the added pressure was on us but uh, something about me I can it's, I can say this easy now but I felt like it was written in the stars a little bit I really do I feel like we're in England uh, is playing in front of a, a home crowd and we're playing a brand of cricket that England have never seen for a long time we were going out there, breaking world records, scoring 400 plus. Uh, the guys were bowling fast. And do you know what I mean? There's always something entertaining going on. You had a batting lineup where guys can go out and hit 100 or 45 balls. And it's not just one or two of them. There's three or four of them in a squad. So it was very, very exciting. But it was just bringing it all together. And obviously, there's a few bumps in the road getting beat by uh, Pakistan and then Sri Lanka uh, and Australia. So it wasn't smooth sailing where you just cruise through the World Cup. 
Uh, we sort of went back into whole, in old habits when we got beat by Sri Lanka. We play, played some negative brand of cricket. We had a team meeting and then we just said, this is what we do. We've been the best in the world because we back ourselves, we back our strengths, we're positive. Not reckless, but positive. And then it switched back on his head and then obviously the last three games were, uh, yeah, history. And I guess, you know, the unique element of cricket, you don't get it as much in baseball, even though you have the lineup and the order. Like you were at one moment there sitting there with your pads on, knowing your next man in. Obviously, everyone wants to be the hero in things. Did you want to be out, if you had been given a choice there, sort of, does another wicket fall? Do I go out into the middle in a World Cup final mm-hmm. and have the responsibility myself? Did you want to be going out to bat? You obviously played a part in what turned out to be, you know, a reasonably significant little partnership in terms of getting towards the, in that run chase. So how did you feel sort of there waiting to, to be next man in? Uh... I'm not sure. It was just, I don't know. I mean, the emotions were high and watch, sometimes watching is more nerve-wracking than actually playing. In my mind, when I did, when the wicket did go, it was like, imagine I hit a couple of sixes here and I win the game. That's what I was thinking. Uh, excuse me. So it's just pretty much, okay, what do I do best? Where's my striking zones? And set myself. Just watch the ball and try and hit the ball in the gap. Get Stokesy on strike or hit a six or four. And that's all you can do. I felt at that point, I played so much cricket at the highest level. It's just taking that sort of not taking the World Cup away, but just embracing it. Like, enjoy that moment. Like, it's a World Cup final. Like, you dreamed of this as a kid. Like, if you hit a six and win the game, it's unbelievable. Same with the, when it came to the, the last ball. It's like, or the last over, the super over. Like, did they want the ball to come to me? I mean, ideally, I had Joffre just ball six yorkers and we won comfortably. But also, if you took a one-handed diving catch, that's you on billboards and commercials for the rest of your life, you know? So it's, oh, yeah, it's... Uh, a blink of an eye, we won. So it's uh, what's meant to be was meant to be. So, and how did that feel so, within that match itself? Obviously, New Zealand didn't post a huge total, certainly by modern standards, right? Most people would have said what you had to chase there would have been a fairly comfortable run chase. What was the feeling there, sort of at that midway point, and how difficult was it not to almost get ahead of yourselves, thinking, right, this should be fairly straightforward. We have room to almost mess up a little bit and should still be should still get there they're a great team they're uh they play on similar kind of wickets in new zealand we knew that the wicket wasn't flat the ball was nibbling around as i said for me when i balled it wasn't like you didn't need much variation it was like being consistent smacking your length and the wicket was nibbling around so we weren't we didn't take it like that we had a job to do and we knew it'd be tricky as i said if you lose a couple wickets early on in a world cup final that pressure soon uh, pushes down on you so no it was we had a job to do let's just play it like we normally play if a uh, openers are aggressive normally then they'll be aggressive if Rooty comes in and knocks it around and hits the gaps and scores his one a ball for the first 40 balls whatever that's what he does so it wasn't it was a job to do but it was just the same method so I, I mean going into that match I guess you know the cliche always is it's just another match it's just another match it's just another game you know when you go to finals but I, I mean now looking back on it was it, I mean, how are you able to keep the same energy level and not get yourself too excited, too nervous, too anxious, or looking back on it, do you kind of say like, yeah, I was pretty worked up or, you know, maybe I went to my benefit, you know, I, I bowled better than, you know, I thought I was going to do because I was a little, you know, had a little extra percentage boost from, from it being a final. Uh, I think when we, the rain delayed made it worse because it was like dragged out a little bit and there was nerves and stuff. But like the night before I slept pretty well 
did my prep as normal and trying not to think about it. Just it's World Cup. This is, this is great to play in. But I had my nerves early on. I started at the uh, I think the pavilion end and I didn't bowl that great first couple of overs. But then sort of my nerves went. It's like what's the worst can happen, right? It's then I came on the next end and I felt comfortable. As soon as I got into a rhythm, then it's that's it. You just focusing on the uh, where you want to bowl it. Uh, what's the delivery I want to bowl? Have your plan A, plan B, plan C, and obviously go to work. And then sort of transitioning, kind of merging the two together in a sense in terms of what you're doing now in your career. I mean, you attribute some of your success there you mentioned in terms of going to the U.S. and focusing on getting into really great shape. There's been some influence of baseball on cricket, particularly from fielding. I know over the last sort of 10, 20 years, there's been some elements like with the relay throws and some of the boundary fielding where people have taken some principles from from you know how the techniques of baseball. Did you ever as a player sort of pay any attention to baseball in terms of trying to think where the bits and pieces that you could take from another sport to try and make yourself a better player? More so now. I think more so now because I'm here and there's so many methods that you can use. It's like our facility has uh, kids baseball, you have your, your coaches and even softball the way that... Because you think about if you're in a circle of cricket, the quickest ball, the quickest way to get the ball to the stumps is a good underarm, right? And these softball coaches and stuff, the ball comes out rapid fire. So more so now because I'm living, I'm living here. But I guess, yeah, growing up and playing cricket in the UK, we always had uh, coaches coming in who'd been involved with baseball, who'd looked into that, investigated in the different techniques. I didn't really uh, say go and find it individually because it was there for me anyway. I think I was fortunate enough that I had a, a good arm as a kid and as a professional, I was I was pretty good in terms of accuracy and power. So I felt I was in a good spot. But definitely now, definitely I look into it now. Part of my job is to, to go into different sports and how can we improve cricket through these sports. So it's something I'm definitely invested in now. So, so I mean, being being out in Philly now, it's a, a really good sports town and, you know, they have all the major sports. So now that you're there permanently, have you gotten into any other sports? Is it, is it just baseball that, you know, you, you kind of have an interest in now because it's kind of closely resembles it or, or have you gotten into like American football or basketball or. Yeah. To be honest with you, baseball, when I first came across the won the world series, so I was into that massively, but I've been in and out of it. There's so many games I've not paid too much attention. I can't spend all the time watching cricket and baseball because I get nothing done. Uh, I think for me, a bit of a bandwagon jumped on it this year because they were doing very well. Like Towards the playoffs, I watched obviously a few of them series and then the World, World Series. But uh, obviously, Chad uh, completely uh, forgot what I'm going to say there. So there's a, a guy who played Astros, uh, Chad, uh, took the catch. On the, he's from Westchester, you see. He's a Philly boy. Uh, so it's great to see someone from Westchester being successful uh, and winning a World Series, even though he's not, he doesn't play for the Phillies. Uh, I think of his second name now, I've completely forgot. McCormack, Chad McCormack. Sorry. Uh, so he's, uh, when I first used to come across his brother, uh, Ryan, used to, uh, I used to pay him to, to throw cricket balls at me in an all-star baseball facility just around the corner. So it's obviously nice. I know him and as much as I want Philadelphians to win, it's nice to see someone who I know as a family member be successful and win something so big. Uh, Eagles, I, I like the Eagles. I try and watch the Eagles as much as I can. Obviously, uh, lost the other day, but they're, they're going really well. In terms of the soccer, I went to a few soccer games. They also got beat in the final, which is disappointing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going through the American sports here. The Flyers, I've maybe watched one game. I've not really got that. Uh, 
And I'm sixes. I, I like my basketball. I keep an eye on that. They're they're a strong team. Not started off well, but you got some massive players. I enjoy the basketball, but uh, yeah, it's. I feel like I'm honestly. I feel like I'm so busy. Uh, I don't get to watch that much. I'll go to a game. I went to the Eagles Cowboys uh, game at the, at the stadium a few weeks back. So that was that was exciting. And so if you'd you know if you'd grown up in the U.S. and say you know fallen into baseball instead of cricket. Is there a position, do you think you would have been a pitcher? Is there other position that kind of interests you more? And and do you think you could have, you know, kind of what standards do you think you could have reached as as a baseball player? Obviously, very hypothetical, but, you know, do you feel like that's something you could have, you know, you could have built on your existing skills and translate into being a pretty good baseball player? I mean, in the back of my head, yeah, I'd be a pitcher. I'd be earning millions every year, but... <laughs> I remember, as I said to you, I, I have a good arm for cricket. Well, I did have a good arm in my, my 20s, early 30s. I would probably have one of the best arms in the country at that point. Uh, but I remember coming across here early 20s and I had friends here who just worked in local jobs, maybe played a bit of baseball at high school. And then I remember we had a few beers and went and did some catch in the park and they had rockets. And I'm like, all right, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I wouldn't have made a baseball. And these guys played firing at me, so it's... Do you know what I mean? It's that that that's open to them. They've probably had coaching from uh, pitching coaches and baseball throwing coaches all their junior and senior life. So it's uh, wishful thinking. Yeah, wishful thinking. And so then, in now establishing your life in the U.S., we love to talk about. You know, we mostly focus on sports, but we also talk about like food and stuff at different moments in time. What are the things you miss the most from just either food, drink, sort of? normal parts of your life back in the UK that you just can't get now in the US? I miss, uh, we've still got a place there. I miss like as, yeah, as take it how you want. I do miss like living in the countryside in the UK. Uh, beautiful part. I'm going back for Christmas. We have a cottage still there, so I'm excited about that. Uh, Sunday, Sunday roast. Can't beat a Sunday roast. Uh, but I, do you know what? I've been back and forth for 15 years here, so I always knew I was going to be here. I miss can't believe I didn't say this first. I miss my family mainly. I miss well, them. yeah, yeah probably, that goes without saying. <laughs> they're, they're we, besides that, yeah. you know, we yeah, of course. That's an obvious. <laughs> just pipped it. They're probably just before the Sunday roast. They just got in there. Uh, but yeah, just obviously you have a lot of friends there. Uh, that, but I, yeah, I, there's a lot of things I miss. So family Sunday roast, the countryside, in the cottage and stuff. But then it's I'm so. I don't really think about it because I'm living with my wife in America, doing a job involved in cricket, which is a brand new organization, and I'm a major part of that, so it's very exciting. Uh, my family travel back and forth. My parents came to watch some cricket this year with a bit of the minor league. They've already booked the flights for, for next summer to watch the major league. So it's uh, it's exciting. Yeah, it's I don't have too much to dwell on it because I feel there's so much going on here, and I'm very fortunate to obviously be here living with my wife. So. And you said the major league is going to be next July and it's going to be about like two or three weeks. Yeah. It's from the 13th uh, to the, the 30th. I'm just looking at my uh, major league deck on my laptop behind us. Uh, just <laughs> double checking. So yeah, it's uh, get on there. Yeah. 13th to the 30th. So it's obviously the main thing is the major league cricket and we're getting the best international players around the world and hopefully we're going to have the best stadiums. Uh, so it's exciting time for us. That's what we're aiming for. The best uh, tea. T20 cricketers around the world because that'll make a massive impact if you can get them across and it gets more eyes on it so uh, yeah it, it's exciting 
Yeah, it's super exciting, and it's nice to see. I think sometimes within sports, right, people can not kind of want not want their there's that like idea of kind of liking a band before they're famous, and and people don't like the idea of their sport spreading and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's nice to see the sport growing into new countries and things. I guess sort of speaking, my final question then for you: you've been you've played in you've had the, the hundreds come around. Was there any discussion in terms of with Major League Cricket in terms of having a format like that where you then at least don't have to explain what an over is to people. It kind of has, solves that problem. Was there any? Was there any talk at any point in terms of trying to have a variation of the, on the T Twenty game, or was it just no? This is the format we want to go with. Uh, I think there might have been. I'm, I'm definitely. I mean, the idea would have been uh, put out there, but I feel like T Twenty is so successful, and everyone knows it around the world who is involved with cricket, and it would just feel like it was the easiest platform to roll out. Uh, and I don't mind it, like the people who don't know what an over is, that's a part of cricket. So introducing Americans to some sort of traditional cricket rules is, is quite nice. Uh, so yeah, I mean, who knows down the future, they might change some kind of stuff, but I feel T20 is the best the best one to, to put into America. Uh, yeah, so that, that's why they went for it, I think. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's going to be great. I mean, I think, I think the biggest hurdle will just be getting people in. And I think once people are in and watch it, it, it is T20 is so exciting. I mean, when I started watching cricket with, you know, when, when I was around Eddie, this is now probably about 10 years ago. I mean, we, we basically started off with, you know, like four day matches and, and, and it was, I thought it was fun then. And then as we got to like ODIs, I was like, wow, this is cool. And then T20s and, you know, as an American, I love the concept of the T20 and just seeing like Chris Gale just crush you know, sixes, you know, like ball after ball after ball was just so fun to watch them just like hit it so far and just so hard. So I, I think if you can get Americans in, I think they would love the T20 format. I think it'd be cool. Yeah. hundred percent. And as I said, it's how do we get, uh, Americans in, uh, speaking to my wife and all her friends, it's, it is kind of exciting. <laughs> if you can do some sort of, uh, corporate events and get people in and then it's like, Oh, this is actually really cool. This is very exciting. I think we will get it in. I don't feel like we'd have issues filling out the crowd because you're always going to have the demographic of people who love cricket, the Indians, the Pakistanis, and expats, uh, all that good stuff. But it's we want it, everyone to be involved. We want people who've never seen cricket to be so excited because that's how the sport will grow. And then you'll get more eyes on, which means more publicity, more sponsorship, uh, more TV stuff. So that's that's what we want down the line. So I was gonna say, I guess my last question is to to get back to that 2019 World Cup. What was the what was the the celebration like after? I mean, it, just the not only did you win, but the way that you won. I, I mean, I can't imagine the high of that win and and just the excitement and how long that carried on for. Yeah, it was funny because it obviously it was a little bit of a blur. I think it, you're in such an, a a bubble playing uh, cricket in the World Cup. You're in this environment where it's high pressure. Even when you're in the hotel relaxing and going to bed, you're in that bubble and it's still pressure because you're thinking about every game and uh, all eyes are on you. So I think when we won, it was a bit of uh, the pressure's off. So it was like deep breath. Uh, and everyone through went through waves of emotion. I think we won. Uh, I went back to the dressing room quickly before the ceremony. And I think I just broke down. It hit you like it's a World Cup, but it was emotional. And then people went through different stages. Someone had breakfast, sat down, and that's when they found it emotional thinking back. And everyone's playing that meme where it was the Titanic music to the, the run out and like people watching that, like a bit of tears in their eyes. So it was like, uh, but, but it was amazing. Right. And it, it took a, a while for it to sink in, but 
it, it was good. It was a, a bit of a blur. It would have been nice if we had some more stuff for the next few days, but the England guys had to get ready for test match series against Ireland, which they probably wish they didn't have to play because I think uh, a lot of them guys got struggled in that first innings, but uh, they managed to come back and win it. Uh, but yeah, amazing feeling to have my, my family, uh, my wife and my father-in-law flew across for that. My, my dad actually... Uh, on the way to the ground in the morning, I think tripped and like, he might have got like a little crack in his rib, but obviously I didn't know about that. So obviously the first one, the first persons I embraced at the end was my dad and I squeezed the shit out of him and he <laughs> let, let out a bit, of a, a bit of a squeal. And he was like, oh, okay, sorry about that. But, uh, but yeah, it was, as you can imagine, like a World Series, a World Cup and a Super Bowl kind of feel, it was, it was a dream come true. When you play in the backyard as a kid and it's, you're playing with a friend. It's like, oh, if this wicket, you win the World Cup, or if you take this diving catches to win the World Cup, and that that was that was there right in front of us. So yeah, it was it was dreamy. It was one of the best best days of my life. It is the weird thing, right? I mean, you even seen it with the England team now, they, having won the T20 World Cup. They're now straight into a one day series against Australia. Like you don't have that. Most other sports, you'd have an off season following it, and really an opportunity to kind of savor the victory and let it sink in. And you got to get right back to business, pretty much. I, yeah. It sucks a little bit because you take a breath and you're enjoying all that hard work of winning a World Cup and then you have to play in a competition. You're probably like a little bit like that. When I when we won the World Cup and it was like a few days later, I was renting a flat in London. I was sat on my sofa by myself watching Netflix. It was just all of a sudden, <laughs> it was just like, I'm not asking for a sob story because it is, yeah. it is like, all right, it's back to reality. I remember I went back and played for Surrey and I struggled like I did to get up for it. I was trying to get up for it. I just couldn't. And a blessing in disguise was not the best thing, but I got a, a beamer and I broke my thumb, which gave me two weeks off and I flew to America and I sort of relaxed and just enjoyed being with my wife. And when I went back to Surrey, we sort of debriefed with a sports psychologist, sort of got everything on paper and then I was happy to, to kick on again. It's like, listen, you have to get back to normality. People are chasing you. You want to keep improving. So you have to put all of them things back in your mind. Probably some American listeners who just think that you rented a BMW and broke your thumb driving it. But well, <laughs> but uh, I guess that the only other thing I would say, maybe a slight disappointment about that World Cup, the fact that it's a trophy that you can't drink out of. I think yeah. that's always... It's a, it's a, it's a mistake. Every, every, every trophy needs to be... A we found it. I've got what? videos that I was going to keep on my phone that, uh, yeah, that we managed to find it. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, you can only, you, I guess you can only do a shot out of the ashes the trophy then. Yeah. Well, that'd be awful though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I guess on that note, Liam, thanks so much for, for taking the time to speak with us. It's obviously been great to catch up on, on your career and really exciting to hear about what's going on with Major League Cricket. We'll definitely be you know, cover it as much as we can and, and hope to, you know, have you. And I, mean, other... I think I'll probably be there, to be honest. Yeah, attend some games. <laughs> I mean, Dallas isn't that far from Arizona. So I definitely, if I, if I could have the time, I'd love to go see it. I think it'd be so fun. Yeah, I mean, absolutely for me. Thanks for having me on. Uh, nice to speak to you guys. And for the American listeners, please give it a chance. I think you'll find it interesting. Yeah. Uh, very fast paced. So it's, uh, as I said, it's so different to uh, baseball in a way you can score 360 around the ground. So it's, uh, it'd be different, unique, but please tune in and please come to a game or definitely view it on TV. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. Cheers, guys.